Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Did you know that students get it free? The Irish Times offers a free digital subscription to all full-time undergraduates. Keep up to date for free with quality journalism and reporting. Claim yours today at irishtimes.com slash subscribe slash student. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Today, we are talking to Alice Ryan about her first novel, a sprawling family saga full of warmth, humour and oodles of character set in Dublin, London and Bali. It's called There's Been a Little Incident, but getting published for the first time wasn't totally straightforward. So I didn't hear anything back. And on the Curses Brown website, it said, if you haven't heard anything for 90 days, you can email us. So my husband and I got the calendar and we put 90 days on because I'm a very conscientious person. And on the 90th day, I sent one of these like very female emails that was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Just if you if you don't like it, maybe I might send it to someone else. And immediately they wrote back saying we never got it. Uh, there's something wrong with the server. Send it now. Halfway through reading it, her assistant said, we love it. Stop. Don't send it to anyone else. That was Alice Ryan there and more from her a little bit later. Before that, a couple of things we wanted to bring to your attention. On Saturday, the annual ARC March for Choice is taking place in Dublin. And why do we still need a March for Choice after we repealed the 8th in 2018? Well, because unfortunately, there are still restrictions on abortion provision in this country, which means that some women are still having to travel. And of course, we're now in the final stages of the abortion review, so it's all to play for. And if you want to join in the action and stand together for equitable, accessible and legal abortion, for all, the march begins at the Dáil at 12.45pm this Saturday. I also just wanted to mark the horrible situation in Tehran where a 22-year-old Iranian woman died after being arrested for violating strict hijab rules, a protest against the Islamic Republic's morality police. Masa Amini was detained on the 16th of September for allegedly wearing a hijab headscarf in a quotes, improper way. Activists said the woman whose Kurdish first name is Gina has suffered a fatal blow to the head, a claim denied by officials who have announced an investigation. Police continue to maintain that she died of natural causes, but her family suspect that she was subjected to beating and torture. She died in the hospital last Friday after being in a coma for three days. Her death, as you will probably have seen, has sparked widespread demonstrations in Tehran and Kurdistan. Iran has shut off the internet in parts of Tehran and Kurdistan and blocked access to platforms such as Instagram and WhatsApp in an attempt to curb a growing protest movement that has relied on social media to document dissent. The protests are going on at the moment and they've spilled into cyberspace with videos of women burning their hijabs going viral. Other women have been posting emotional videos in which they cut their hair in protest under the hashtag 
Masa Amini. So we wanted to mention that terrible news today and just send solidarity to all of those protesting. Now, I wanted to begin my interview with debut novelist Alice Ryan by quoting from a piece she wrote recently about her mother, Caroline Walsh, who was former literary editor of the Irish Times, a wonderful woman, um, someone I knew for a long time and a much missed colleague of ours here in the paper. And Caroline Walsh died by suicide 11 years ago. Alice wrote in this piece, When my mum died, I wished she'd been hit by a bus. I wished she'd been killed instantly in a way that didn't threaten to rewrite her life. Of course, everyone's life gets rewritten when they die. They become nicer or funnier. But suicide doesn't leave much room for anything else. Shadows appear over every story and cast doubt on every happy ending, which is hard to fathom because during my mum's lifetime, if there was one thing we were guaranteed, it was a good story and without fail, a happy ending. There's Been a Little Instant is Alice's first novel. It's a story of a lost soul called Molly Black and her Dublin family. A story about the people who have your back when things get really tough. Alice and I had a wonderful chat about her mother, about writing, about grief and about family. And I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. I began by asking Alice about something she said recently, that writing her first book was an act of hope in the face of terrible loss. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like my mum died under very tragic circumstances and I I had actually been writing before then, um, but it did take on a different facet after her death. And I I think uh, after a a while, you know, there's terrible sadness, but after a while also what's left is, is the happiness. And it was a really great exercise for me in recapturing that and kind of, uh, you know, always say that the, the characters are definitely fictional, but the feelings aren't and the emotions. And and I, I wanted to write a novel about grief that, that was ultimately hopeful and that was warm and that left you feeling hopefully that, you know, uh, it was better the time you had um, and that the ending didn't kind of sour it totally. Yeah. And you wrote an incredible piece in the Sunday Times recently, which um moved me a lot because I knew Caroline and I worked with Caroline and she was just a wonderful woman. Tell me a bit about the circumstances of her dying, just so people know. Like you said, it's very tragic. It obviously was. It's 11 years ago. It was very, very shocking. Absolutely. Yeah. And thanks for saying that about the piece, because I genuinely it was harder for me to write that piece than the novel. I know that sounds ridiculous, but, um, you know, to get our head around how she died, it's still it's still impossible. It's still very hard. Sometimes I wake up and I'm like, did that really happen? So my mum was a really happy, uh, wonderful kind of fun person. She brought great imagination to everything. Um, she was really interested in, in everything. And that's why she was, you know, she had a great career in the Irish Times for 36 years because she genuinely was. You could have sent her to cover the schoolboys GAA on a Tuesday and she'd have just come home and said, I mean, the pageantry, you wouldn't believe it. You know, so she just she was a very happy person. Um, and she got a very rare um illness. Uh, it was a uh, related to her thyroid and it was thyroid-induced psychosis. And I'm always conscious to tell people like this is really rare because I know a lot of people have issues with their thyroid. I don't want everyone, um, you know, getting worried. It's, it's really, really rare. And um, it, it took quite a while for us to even understand what was going on. But in 2011, um, in, in the September of 2011, we began to notice that she was really quite unwell. Um, the symptoms at first were physical. So, 
she had a uh, an ear infection that she could not get rid of. She couldn't shift. And after antibiotics, after antibiotics, it was determined that actually her thyroid was making her um, unable to, it was kind of making her immunity lower. Um, and then unfortunately, she, the psychosis began to set in. So she had terrible insomnia. Um, she lost a huge amount of weight. She had a hand tremor. Um, and she she really detached from from herself and from the world around her, which is very hard to believe, um, you know, because uh, she was such a person of the world. Um, and uh, she was in various hospitals. I think she was in six different hospitals. And, and the problem was, you know, uh, with a condition like this, it's a physical, you know, there's a, there's a psychiatric manifestation of a physical issue. So she was in physical hospitals and they were saying, you know, we'll treat the thyroid. And then she was in um, uh, psychiatric institutions and they were saying this is a physical element. And uh, it was a bit of an, you know, I, say, I was going to say it's a bit of a nightmare. It was a full nightmare. I don't know why I added the bit. It was, it was a, your worst nightmare um, to see someone you love lose their mind. And uh, very, very sadly, um, on the 21st of December, um, when she'd been bounced around from hospital to hospital and she'd, um, she was going through these psychotic um, episodes, she took her own life and um, it was at Dunleer Pier. And um, I was the first person to arrive on the scene. And, um, you know, there was a moment actually, Roisin, where I kind of thought, you know, they, they found a pulse and I thought, oh, okay, this is, we've now realised how serious this is. And that's our lesson. And, and Christ, I'm going to go, I'm going to become the world expert on thyroid, on psychosis. But it wasn't to be. And, um, you know, we were left absolutely floored. I don't, I don't need to tell anyone listening because you can imagine. Um, but we uh, obviously learnt more about the condition. And, and, and with time, and that's why this piece, it was so important for me to write this piece, um, with time, we were able to kind of say that her death was one thing and her life was another. Yeah. And you, you write in the piece that there was times when you wished that your mum had died by being hit by a bus or some kind of accident like that, which is, in fact, what happens to the mother in, in your novel. But you also were talking to someone about psychosis and they described it to you like the person is on fire all the time and you're just glad that she wasn't on fire anymore. But the, for a while, you wish that she had obviously died in different in a different way. Oh, completely! Like, and I'm sure people feel that uh, who don't have suicide, but even you know, a long and, and difficult illness. I mean, um, I, there's definitely worse things than death, right? You know, and I think uh, seeing her suffer like that, and seeing her have to come to the place where she ended up taking her own life, is just that's way harder to live with for me than her death. You know, and just. Let's talk a little bit about Carolyn before we move in on to yeah. the novel, because in that piece again, which is just superb and so moving, I've read it a few times now and it's just very, very affecting and, and gorgeously written because you're such a great writer. You started with this incredible anecdote about Caroline, which I think captures her spirit. Um, so tell us about that, about the day that she was on the tour bus. Oh, and these are they're like these are not embellished, Roisin. Like, I, I, I know. Like, in fact, in fact, some of them I think I had to take down because you know people, you know, I had to take them down a tone. Uh, yeah, so we would, my mom and I uh, would go off into town. We'd, I mean, she was just great for an adventure. Like I remember her bringing me to like the ca a, a candle factory in Tullamore. You know, like she would bring me. We would go anywhere, and it would end up being a fantastic day. So one day we were in town, 
And uh, it was a horrible wet day and uh, we were waiting for the bus. It was actually pre-Lewis times so and, you, and pre-apps. So you'd be waiting for the bus, as you remember. Like, you'd have no, you'd have no idea, like, when it was coming. <laughs> and we were waiting there and we were waiting and we were waiting. And she just said, look, that's it. The next bus that comes, I'm getting on. That's whatever it. bus it is, wherever yeah. it's going. And you know, as a child, you have those moments where you're, that when you're when you're when your parent slightly loses it, you're kind of like part of you scared, also part of you is like, this is deadly. Like, she, what's <laughs> going to happen now? So the bus comes around, and I'm like, God, where are we going to end up now? The other side of the city, and it's the tour bus. And I knew immediately we weren't getting on because the tour bus was, I think it was like ten pounds. You know, and our bus fare was maybe one one year, and uh, she didn't even look at me. She just stood stood right up on the step got on, paid her money. And at the beginning, the tour bus is empty. The man is looking and he's like, oh, where are you guys from? And she's like, Ranla. <laughs> and we go right up to the top. It's pouring rain. And he starts doing his tour. And at first, she just starts saying, she's just adding in little bits. And as you can imagine, by the end, she has the mic. She's telling these huge stories. I think maybe she was singing by the end. And I do remember when we eventually got home, my, we couldn't actually tell my dad what had happened because we were laughing so much. And I, I think... Like that imagination she brought to parenting was just, it's the greatest gift. Yeah. And the other lovely moment that I, I really appreciated is that you'd be telling her some story or asking her for something or some more stationery that you needed for school or whatever else. And she'd get this look in her eyes where she'd just look at you and see you. Tell me about that, because it's actually when I read it, I thought I need to look at my kids more like that. But go on, tell me. Uh, you know, to have a mum like that. And that's where, you know, people always say to me, oh God, your mum committed suicide, that's really tough. And and on my bad days, I'm like, yeah, it's awful. But but I'm also like, God, not everybody has what I had. And she 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 used to, yeah, it used to really annoy me. She would she would start I'd be saying something really important, like as you say, the highlighters. Like when you were 14, I mean, the the highlighters are a serious deal. Like if you don't have your pink, your red, you know. So I'd be saying something and I could just tell she'd zone out and she'd have this serene smile and she'd put her hand on my cheek and she always called me um, my darling girl. And I just think now, now that I have my own daughter, I love that she was able to take those moments and just enjoy me. And she'd kind of be smiling and then eventually she'd say, OK, grand, grand, we'll go into reads again, you know. Um, but she, she was... She was in the moment and I guess that's a great gift. She was in the moment and she just appreciated you and you knew that and you felt that all the time, which I think is the thing, isn't it? It, it, it's you. exceptional. It's exceptional. Yeah. So I, I you know, I'm um, obviously like I, I wouldn't want you to think, you know, that I'm OK. I'm absolutely not. Like there's several therapists around Dublin and, uh, you know, lots of medication later, you know, and it, it absolutely is it is a very difficult thing that I live with all my life. Um, but that was why I wanted to write that piece was to say it didn't negate all the goodness. And um, and actually, uh, you know, that all that's the only thing that remains in the end. Well, I'd urge everyone to go and seek out that piece because it is, it is wonderful. And I'm really I'm sure it was difficult to write. But in another way, you've probably been writing it for a long time in your head. Definitely. And, you know, I, I wanted to do it for her. I wanted to say to the world, this is who she was. This is her death and it doesn't change anything. Yeah. Well, listen, let's get to the novel because there is a lot of grief and loss in it, but it's also a very, very funny book. And it's, I mean, I would say it's in the spirit of Marion Keyes. There's a big sprawling family. There's um, there's a lot of fun and crack and Irish humour. And then there's a lot of poignancy and uh, and grief and loss as well. And, and that's kind of, I suppose, what, what um, is the theme of it, about how when things fall apart, 
families um, can be the, the ones that put it back together again. So why did you want to explore that? Was it related to the fact that you'd had, I mean, it's called There's Been a Little Incident, which is kind of, you know, it's a small way of describing something quite big. But tell us about the motivation and the themes in the book. Yeah, I mean, I'm always obsessed with this idea that, you know, and it's happened to me so many times, you can be in a really bad place in your life and it's very surprising where the the support can come from. And, and it's sometimes it's someone in your family, it's often someone in your family maybe you, you didn't quite know too well, but it also can be, you know, a friend that you didn't know you were that close to. And and I've had moments in my life and, and I, rare, I, I cry less when bad things happen to me than when I do when good things happen, you know. And there have been several moments where people have just come out of the woodwork and it's just such ho- such a hopeful thing when someone reaches out to you and kind of sees you're struggling and... and I wanted to write a novel that was, uh, you know, a hopeful, warm novel. I'd I'd actually written a a first novel that ended up in the bin (laughs) and um, only my cousin had read it and uh, she said she loved it. It was great. And a few weeks later, she said, um, just can I ask, like, are all your friends like, are they really, are they like deeply unhappy? (laughs) I was like, sorry. She was like, you know, like eating disorders and like, you know, and it was the, the novel you write in your 20s, you know, and it was everyone it was a lot of angst. And, and I thought to myself, OK, it just really struck me, uh, struck me because she said, like, you know, you're actually funny, but there was none of that in the novel. And I think I don't know when people write what they think, but I, I definitely for that first novel thought like I want to be taken seriously and I want to do something that's really, you know, powerful and I would sit in London and I would do things like you know clean the whole flat before I was ready to write the novel and then you know that novel went in the bin it didn't get picked up and then I thought okay what if I just wrote the novel I wanted to write and that novel was written almost entirely on my phone while the fish fingers were burning or while I had I used to keep my my the soother in my daughter's mouth like with one hand and just write in, at 4am on the other I'm really surprised that on your phone but although there's a lot of text messages in the in the book as well which are really work brilliantly and um, but how did you find writing on your phone yeah I mean again I think I look back now and I do think it's very funny I, would, I, mean, when I was in London and I wanted to write and I'd be like mm, do I do I feel like writing today and then, and I look back now and I'm like who is your one like it, it is not that's just not you're never going to get a novel written like that um, and for me the phone was absolutely the main place I still you know that's where ideas come to me on the bus on you know, on the trip to crash and I would write everything down and then I take like a week's holiday from my day job and I like plow into it. And, um, you know, sometimes I've gone and stayed with my dad uh, in the countryside in the middle of nowhere and left my daughter with my husband and just worked all night and he would just provide me with meals and I just use the messages on the phone to, to build something. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I was just thinking as you were speaking there, you were talking about your cousin. So, you know, I'm wondering about the pressure because your grandmother, Mary Lavin, absolutely revered um, Irish writer. Your cousin, Kathleen McMahon, who is another uh, revered Irish writer. Now, your father, James, is a writer and also lectures in creative writing, I think. And obviously, Caroline was the literary editor of the Irish Times. No pressure, Alice. Yes, gas, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, yeah, no, do you know what? It's it, it's funny because I did the usual thing of when a child, you know, I grew up in this literary household and I, I'd say I didn't read a book till I was 17. Like, I just was like, I've no interest in this. And because they, they loved it so much and they desperately wanted me to write. So what used to happen was I every evening I would pick a tome from their big bookshelf. And they had these really big ones. And I'd pick a really thick hardback one to paint my nails on. And I would, yeah, and I and I would take it, and and then years later, my mom saw me do this, and her like her face fell, and I was like, "What's wrong?" And she's like, "For years, your father and I thought that secretly you were just very interested in the analytical take on Ulysses, um, but no, I'd just been painting my nails on them, and I always like the big ones, you know, for the thick. So it, you know, I went off and I studied economics, and I was like, I don't know about that writing business, um, and then it just, yeah, it kind of came out, and I didn't tell any of them. So that's what you have to do in my family. You have to write novels secretly. So I didn't tell anybody until I had uh, gotten the book deal. Really? Yeah, I actually changed my name as well. So my name is Alice Ryan, but I uh, made up an email address with my husband's name. And that's how I sent the book out, just in case anybody would connect who my mom and my And why did you, why was that important to do that, Alice? I just didn't want anyone doing me any favours. Um, and also I'd seen how it went. I was pretty sure I wasn't going to get published. Like I, I, so many brilliant writers uh, don't get published. So I just thought I, I don't want people, what I didn't want was people saying, well, Alice is writing a book and uh, how's it going, Alice? And then me to be like, oh, I got another rejection, Mary. So you didn't get rejected. What happened? You sent it off and what was the... Oh, Roisin, I got so rejected. <laughs> Okay, yeah. I got worse than rejected. Tell me, tell me all, lay it out. Okay, I got so worse than rejected. Uh, I was actually, I listened to your interview with Bonnie Garmus and I was really jealous of her rejections because what I got was radio silence. So I sat in London writing my big novel secretly thinking, oh my God, wait till everyone sees this. I sent it off to everyone and no one ever wrote back. Like, Nobody. I mean, nothing. No one even confirmed that they'd gotten it. And I, and do you know what? I, I was crestfallen. You can laugh about it now, but like, it doesn't make it any easier. So, um, and then a few weeks, months later, I was sitting at my desk at the BBC and I got an email and it was from Sheila Crowley at Curtis Brown. And it said, look, this isn't the novel. It's not right for the following reasons, but you can write, go again and send it to me. So I swallowed the absolutely massive lump in my throat and I started again. And then when I sent it to her, I, I, I didn't send it to anyone else. I, I you know, I, I, so, I felt it was so, it meant so much to me that A, she bothered to get back to me and B, her feedback was spot on 
that I was like, this is the person for me. And then she took me on. So when you when you you took her feedback and you you rewrote essentially what you had sent her. Nope. I started a whole new novel. So this is novel three. This is novel two. Sorry. Oh, no. I thought. Oh, sorry. This was the original one that you put that is in the bin. There was yeah, I sent her the one that ah, is now in the bin. Yeah, and okay. then uh, I wrote a second one. It's really funny. It really distresses my brother that the first novel can't be resurrected. I'm like, no, it's like it's not good enough. And he's like, but we, I'll be fierce handy now. You just take it out and you know. <laughs> he's like, can we not just like you know polish it up there and yeah, a little bit. And I'm like, no. My dad very kindly calls it my PhD. Oh, that's lovely because it is a lot of work. You know, I know, and like to be honest, the second novel was three years, but only because of the first ten. And it, it, like, I actually can hear myself sitting at home in London being like, you're some idiot saying that. Like, because the person in London was very annoyed and very low. And, you know, and it's very hard to put a novel in the bin. So I shouldn't discount it. Yeah. Uh, but I'm very glad I started again. So when you sent, there's been a little incident to Sheila Crowley then, was, did she say, this is it? This is the novel? Okay, so this is, this is how, I'm glad to tell you these stories because they are so awful. So uh, I didn't hear anything back. And on the Curtis Brown website, it said, you can, if you haven't heard anything for 90 days, you can email us. So my husband and I got the calendar and we put 90 days on because I'm a very conscientious person. And on the 90th day, I sent one of these like very female emails that was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Just if you, if you don't like it, maybe I might send it to someone else. And immediately they wrote back saying we never got it. Uh, there's something wrong with the server. Send it now. They, I, halfway through uh, reading it, her assistant said, we love it, stop, don't send it to anyone else. And um, and then they took me on. Well, oh, that is a great story. But imagine if you hadn't sent the email. But it just does show, you need to have nerves of steel. Like, because so many times I was just like, I, to be honest, I don't think I have the nerve. Like, I, I don't know how these people do it. Uh, and I, you know, because I was in bits. Like, I remember wandering around Waterstones in London, like in Covent Garden, like kind of imagining that Macy Gray or someone was on in the background, like, you know, just being like, this is it. I'm not good enough, you know. Well, look, it, I mean, it, it's that's an incredible story and the rejection. And it's again, like you mentioned, Bonnie Garmoose, I think there's so many people who just keep going, the tenacity of it and not giving up. Brilliant. But um, tell us about the central character, Molly Black and the Black family. It's a big, sprawling cast of characters. I don't know. I mean, it starts off and you're kind of trying to remember who's who. And you do it amazingly because you do get to know these people and you keep um, you manage and navigate all that so well. So tell us about the Black family. Oh, um, yeah. So, 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 our, so Molly is one of those people, I think we all know them. We all maybe are, are, have them inside us as well, where she kind of has just been off and she's been all over the world. She's been uh, waitressing in Manhattan and she's been doing ski seasons. And, and I think uh, she kind of turned around one day and realised that everyone else was settling down. So she gets to 29 and she's had this amazing youth and then suddenly people are doing this insane thing called getting mortgages and they're having babies and she's like, is this is this what we do? And and I think it's then that her grief really from losing both her parents at a young age begins to catch up with her. And, um, you know, obviously we've spoken about grief and what I wanted to capture was how and like nebulous grief was and how not linear it is because I think for me, like at different points in my life, I'd just be grand and I'd be going along with my business and then other points it would just hit me. And I think uh, people maybe who haven't suffered from it get, you know, I, I certainly got a big fright because I was like, well, what, why now? And what what's provoked this? Um, so she's kind of having a bit of a crisis and she disappears. 
So then we have her very eccentric family back in Dublin in Leopardstown um, who kind of meet together. And the thing is, like, she's 29. She's written a note. So what does one do? Like, you know, do, like technically, you know, as far as the Guardia concerned, she's grand. Um, but her amazing Uncle John is just not going to let her go. And uh, he decides to rally a, a group to go and find her. And uh, I guess the novel is what ends up happening. Yeah, we don't want to do any spoilers, but I mean, it's a it's a gripping read. There's a subplot as well involving another missing woman, which keeps you guessing too uh, until the end. And how did you find that writing so many characters? Because that is, I think that's difficult for anybody, never mind your debut novel. What was your, did you do a Maeve Binchy and have it all on plotted out on a on the wall or what was your strategy? Well, I really wanted to have something that worked, but but it just kept changing. So like I'd make an Excel spreadsheet or I remember going into town and buying like, you know, big yellow posters and then that would fall off. So it really was just in my head. And I think there's great, um, there's a great gift in, it's a great freedom in it being your debut novel and in already having been rejected. You know, a lot less mattered to me. Like I just wrote who I wanted to write. And, and I think in hindsight now, I, I, I think... I understand that, that, you know, some people, you know, it's harder to get published, say, if you have a multi-strand narrative. But the truth is, they're the books I like to read. So I had nothing to lose this time. So I just wrote what I wanted to read. And I wanted to read about, um, you know, mixed up people who have, you know, bad things happen to them as well. And you mentioned Marion Keyes, and that's where she is a total genius because she does this amazing mix of light and dark. And I'm always surprised when humorous novels don't have dark and dark novels don't have humor because, like, Christ, that's what life is, is a mix of both. So, um... I very much wanted to 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 write a novel that made you both laugh and cry. Yeah, well, it does that completely. And just going back to your sort of what would you say writing pedigree, and it's it's kind of fascinating to me that you saw yourself in that vein, maybe in this serious writer vein. Not that you're not a serious writer, but you're obviously a very humorous person. You're funny and light. And once you embrace that side of yourself and that side of yourself as a writer, things clicked for you. So it was really about being Alice rather than being some other version of of what you thought you might should should be as a writer. Oh yeah, you'd have to laugh. Someone said to me recently, uh, they'd read the book and they took me aside and said, don't worry, it is a literary novel. And I was like, oh, right, okay. And then now it does straight, it is a bit popular at some points. And I was just like, oh, uh, it's just, it was, it was very funny because I, I do think people are obsessed, aren't they? With like uh, what genre something is. I'm definitely more obsessed if it's a female writer. Um, and uh, I think for me, like the idea that something is negative if it's popular is gas and it's negative if it's commercial is also gas. But the truth is, um, you know, a lot of the writers I love now, a lot of them were American and they had straddled this. Um, so um, I'm thinking particularly of, say, Where'd You Go, Bernadette? Yeah by Maria Semple. Brilliant. And yeah, How to Kill Your Family by Bella Mackey. Oh, I love that me, book. I yeah, had her on as well. Yeah, and for me, it's like that, I, I was like, okay, hang on. There is a genre here and it's dark and it's uh, uh, plot driven, um, but it's also kind of does have that in, in depth and, and it, it can be funny. So I think it's not something that has been done that much in, in, in Irish novels. But like I said, Maeve Binchy's a great example. Like, uh, you know, there, there's scenes in Maeve Binchy where you're like, hang on, Maeve, that got very 
dark. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and everyone thinks of Maeve as, as light. But I, I think in hindsight as well, everyone can see someone like Maeve's genius. And, uh, you know, uh, so I guess in answer to the question, I just began to not not care. And, and look, it's as simple as everyone says that. And you, you only succeed when you begin to not care, isn't it? Yeah, I do think it's interesting that someone felt they had to reassure you that it was literary. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think this, there's a long way to go before we, you know, when we realise popular fiction, anything that people want to read is just as valid. Like, why why this obsession with so-called literary stuff? Oh, I thought that was hilarious. And then also, you know, when you're talking with your publishers, they're like terrified. They're like, now it's crossover. And everyone's like, guys, it's crossover. Don't worry, it's crossover. You know, which I guess means literary and popular. And you're like, oh, it's crossover. Don't worry. Yeah. And like, it's book, now, book club. It, it is about this sprawling family. And I'm just wondering when you started to show it to members of your own family, were they all looking for bits that were like them in it? Oh, so my aunt rang me and I, she was so quiet. I was actually quite nervous. And she was like, I didn't recognise anyone. <laughs> she was not impressed. <laughs> And I was like, well, well, that's the point. Like, it's fiction. And then she was like, I'll have to read it again now. Because apparently she'd read, the, the first time she just read it, just looking literally for, um, yeah. So, you know, it, it's funny. Uh, people who know me uh, definitely see a few things in there. Like, uh, it's just more of me in there, I think, than anyone else. Yeah. I mean, and going back to Caroline, because you wrote in that piece as well about how you went back to some of the books that she loved. And you, you talked about how you didn't, you kind of went away from the reading up till you were 17 or 18, almost as a rebellion against it being pushed. I'm actually thinking of my own house here. They're not reading at the moment and I'm absolutely devastated. But I I, I have to keep stopping myself from talking about it because, you know, it's probably because I went on about it so much that they're not. It's probably my fault. But anyway, you might might give me some tips on that. But you did go back to the books your mum loved after she died. Oh, look, it was the greatest gift. It was like a survival kit and the amazing thing about my mom was she kept notes in all her books and um you know and obviously with suicide it is you know you question everything and I'll never forget one of the days I opened up um Everyman by Philip Roth and there was a quote about his daughter and how he didn't know where she how he'd made someone so amazing and she'd taken it out and she'd written on the first page and you know it's those things that like those gifts that you know it's like someone speaking to you from the beyond and I did I I, I began to read like God, I was reading like you know 30 40 books a year and I just got such solace from the knowledge that this is what she had done and 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 that um she she had faced difficult times and that she had got through them by reading. And, and I loved, you know, there was sometimes where she would read like something, you know, and she'd write in it where she was on holidays and I could picture her. And um, yeah, it was it was a total gift for me. And I think I kind of fell off a cliff then though after because I used to, I was the luckiest person in the world when I came to book recommendations. You know, my mum was a literary editor. She literally would read every single book and then she'd be like, this is what, you know, this is what you will like. And and then I was like, guys, where like where do you get books? Like, what what does one do? So I'm actually a huge Goodreads person. Um, I love Goodreads, and I always go on and kind of um get my books that way. Molly Black's mother as and father, as you said, they they both died when she was quite young, and and she's and the grief kind of catches up with her. But there's some really beautiful letters through the book, which are from uh, Molly Black's mum. Uh, that she wrote to her when she was a baby and wrote to her as she was a parent. Something I think a lot of us think we're going to do and then never get around to. And I just wondered, was that something Caroline had done or where did you get that idea for doing that? Do you know, that was not something from my mum. That was something I did for my daughter. 
Um, You're yeah, one I of really, those I, good people that uh, do that. <laughs> well, no, I'll tell you why, Roisin. I'll tell you why, quite candidly. I really struggled after the birth of my daughter. Like, like, like I mean, I say that, like, I say candidly, Christ, who doesn't? Um, but yeah, I just, I was so tired <laughs> from the childbirth and then I was in the hospital and then they were like, yeah, no, Brian has to leave. I was like, sorry, <laughs> what? And, uh, you know, those first few days and, and I just was like, but when will I sleep? And when will I, you know, and I got diagnosed with postnatal anxiety and I just really, really struggled to kind of just uh, catch up again. And, um, I was, I was so lucky, you know, in particular, and not everybody can say this, but like my brother was unbelievable you know when you lose your mom like people are saying you're gonna do a sister or someone but my brother was exceptional he just came, he just talked about coming out of the woodwork he just was there pretty much all the time he made a rota of help to be, get people to come and, and mind the baby and um when I began I got a little red diary and for me that was I, I you know I didn't know yet if I was going to be a good mom and in fact at the time I thought it was pretty awful um but I thought one, I just, I can write down something and I can, I can write to her and I can start to tell her what I'm thinking and, and also maybe say like, I am struggling. And maybe if, if you become a mom, you'll remember that. And then, um, I, I was very, very lucky to, to, um, to meet with the psychiatrist in, um, in Hollis Street and, uh, he was amazing. And he said, look, everybody's a good mom at different points. So like for some people, the newborn is, they just love it. And he was like, you know, you, you're probably going to find that once you pass the newborn, you're just amazing. And I just looked at him and I was like, okay, Dr. <laughs> okay, okay. But I hung on to that. And, you know, I, I especially, once my daughter turned about one, like, Christ, we have the crack. Like she said to me um, last week, we were on holidays in Kerry and I said, um, look, I'm having a lovely time. Thanks so much for coming with me. And she didn't say anything. And I said, look, but to be honest, like, it's actually my holiday. So thank you for coming with me. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think mother, I didn't know that motherhood was something you could grow into. And, and, and now I just adore it and I'm all about it. But keeping that diary was a way for me to kind of get to that place. So, um, and there's definitely stuff in the book that is ripped from the diary for sure. Yeah, well, you're, um, well, that's some of my favourite bits in it. I just love it. And again, as I said, I'm just jealous. I had great ambitions to do that when I was uh, in the early stages of parenting, but I didn't do it. But I suppose I was writing a column. So there's probably bits in yeah. there. I must look back and, and find and, them. And as you can imagine, Roisin, I have the one diary and I was like, that's great now. And I get on to year two, <laughs> one page on year two. So, <laughs> You know, okay, I like, feel better now. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And also, once they start to speak, like you, you have the relationship with them. You, you don't want to be like, "Hang on, hon, I don't want to talk to you. I'm just writing in the diary." <laughs> That's <laughs> Which right. I actually think I remember um, doing. I wanted before. to ask you because you, uh, I was very pleased a while back when I heard you got this really big job at the BBC which had a, such a great title, the Head of Insight and Planning. And your job was to kind of think about what audiences would like, which is a huge thing. And I'm fascinated by it because, for example, one of the things you worked on was David Attenborough's Blue Planet, which was the highest rated consolidated TV programme of 2017 in the UK. So you're someone who's had to look at what audiences would like and have insights around that. Did you apply that when you were writing your novel? Did you kind of use that stuff? Uh, that's such a good question. And I mean, Christ, I don't think I'll ever get over having worked in the BBC. Like every single day I went in, even though I was there for years, it never got old. Like it was a fantastic job. And I'm so lucky now to be, I've actually just started as head of insight at uh, the Arts Council. So I'm able to, to stay in that area. But um, I, so it's really funny because I'll tell you how it was really useful in that my job was to go and, and, and to 
as you say, consolidate audience feedback and, and bring it to, like, I would go on the train to Cardiff and go to the writers of Doctor Who and say, you know, this isn't really working, this is. So where it was really helpful for me was when I was getting that feedback as a writer. And I remember, like, my agent being like, this is very unusual. Like, you're very excited about the feedback. And I was like, yeah, like, this is my bread and butter. Like, what a gift to have someone take the time and look, it depends, you know, if, if you don't have the right person or they don't see what you're trying to do, that, that's really tough. But when they do try to see what you, you know, if they do understand what you're trying to do, it, like I, I was so lucky, my agent, uh, Sheila, and her assistant, Emily, like I didn't really know that agents gave notes, but like Emily would write me these editorial notes and I'd just be like, I'd be like saying to my husband, she's right, she's right. And he'd be like, can we, can we finish dinner? And I'd be like, no, 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 like, yeah, dead right, we need to do this. And and so it was this huge gift. So absolutely, my day job um, has been incredibly helpful. And also, I just love having a day job. To be honest, like I can't, I kind of think I, uh, I can't imagine not uh, heading off for the day and getting stuck into something. So tell me about your writing life now. Are you writing the next one? What way is it going? Oh, there the- isn't one, Roisin. Sorry, there isn't one. <laughs> like I, ha- I do have this chronic fear that there's someone at home like I was after having a baby and like really struggling and there's fish fingers everywhere. And like, you know, the way um, Weedabix really sticks to everything. So it's like everywhere. And she's just sitting there going, oh yeah, Alice's mother killed herself. And then she had postnatal anxiety. But, you know, she just jumped up and wrote a novel. You know, I really hate that idea. You know, that kind of Instagram, like, I, like right now, there is absolutely no writing happening. Um, I've got the day job. I've got the three-year-old. I've got uh, the promotion for the first book. But... I'm so excited about getting stuck into the next one. Well, I love that answer. And I do hope everyone whose fish fingers are burning and have got Weedabix stuck everywhere feels a bit better after you've said that because... Roisin everywhere, like everywhere. <laughs> like, I mean, seriously. <laughs> and you're like, okay, you want Weedabix? Okay, okay, go, go, go. And I suppose I just want to ask you, because I think, I mean, it must, it must be something that all your family are saying, but... Caroline would be so proud of you. So proud. Nobody would be prouder. How does that feel? There must be that loss as well of knowing that your mum can't see what you're doing. Um, do you know, I look at it a different way, which is she absolutely orchestrated the whole thing. Um, you know, and as I say, because it was such an uphill battle, you know, I, I, again, to our aspiring out, uh, writers out there, I think there was a lot of fluke. Like there was a lot of, I don't, I don't feel like, okay, because this novel was so good, it got published. Like, I've read things before, and I'm sure you have, and you're looking around and you're asking, this is so good, why wasn't this, you know? So so I think uh, I, I hold her totally responsible for all the good things in my life. And I don't know, I'm not a religious person, and before uh, my mum died, I wasn't sure about heaven, but like it factually must exist because there's no way she would give up on watching us. And I could often hear her like laughing at different things. And, you know, and that's where her presence being so strong is great because you actually know what she would say. You know? Yeah. So I'm sorry. I just said Caroline can't see what you're doing, but there's a sense in you <laughs> that she's seeing everything and that not just that she sees it. There's been a guiding hand there as well. Yeah, there's definitely been a, a few moments like, and I I do have such a black sense of humour, but like on the night that she died um, and on, on the pier, Edgar, he started to run towards me and I was like, mum, not now. But he was the most handsome person. I, like, I mean, he was Brad Pitt. It was Brad Pitt. And I was like, mum, this is not going to make up for it. And I know that not that's not to everybody's taste. But, you know, that, so, so I think, um, you know, and, you know, we were... Um, 
Colm Tobin actually very kindly, you know, after Mum's death, a lot of writers wrote about Mum and I guess her legacy. And he did a great kindness to me because, and to my brother, because he wrote when he was asked to write about her, just about me and my brother and how much happiness we gave her. And again, you know, after suicide, everything's so uncertain that that was such a great gift. And he said that he met us one day when I was a child in town and he said, um, what are you guys in town doing? And Mum said, I'm just enjoying my beautiful daughter's company. And um, to have to have that is to have all the luck in the world. Well, that's a lovely way to, to finish, Alice. I'm so delighted for you. Um, it's a brilliant, brilliant book. It's funny. It's moving. Yes, there's the laugh and the cry in it. It's it's clever. Um, it's real and authentic. And it's it's just your voice is very, very clear as a bell, you know, and congratulations on it. And I know I can't wait for the next one, which will come whenever, you know, whenever you get around to it, that's fine. Uh, are you enjoying this part of it, talking about it and being out there with the book? Do you know, I'm not I'm not like a shy person, but I have found it very daunting. Like it's a lot. And uh, as I say, struggling with the day job has been has been really tricky. So I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, a bit of time. Uh, you know, and you know, this is like having kids is a great leveler. Uh, you know, because you're I'm kind of manic days and then I go to crash at half four and uh, my my daughter said to me, um, she said, your, your book is out now. So when you go into the bookshops, they'll just give it to you. And I don't know, I think she means like my book is in the book I'm getting as a present, you know. And she said to me, look, I feel bad for you because the books that you have, they're all the same. <laughs> she thinks that, you know, she's oh, you've got five of the same of the book. I was like, yeah, well, I only wrote the one, but they just gave me, you know. So she just like. Yeah, uh, you'll she, never she, get a big head when you have uh, children, I think I found. <laughs> why, why do you look so beautiful, yeah. mom? <laughs> she said that when you just sort of had washed your face or something to wear a nice dress for an interview oh yeah yeah when I come down the stairs wearing anything but uh, black leggings why do you look so beautiful <laughs> or if I do any cleaning around the house who's coming over mortifying mortifying really? well it's been absolutely a pleasure talking to you Alice and hearing about Caroline as well and just remembering what a wonderful woman she was and I'm not surprised you've turned out to be the woman you are with a mother like that you know it's incredible and uh, the best of luck with everything and hopefully you'll come back on when you have your next one I would be honoured. Um, thank you so much for having me. That's it from me for now. Thanks so much to Alice Ryan and her book, which is brilliant. It's called There's Been a Little Incident and it's in all good bookshops now. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Get in touch with us on social at IT Women's Podcast. We're on Twitter and Instagram too. Or email us, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. Mind yourselves and I'll talk. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Talk to you next time.